And we are rolling live here on this Thursday topical session. But were they really saved? Is, of course, the title section of our discussion. We will find our friends over at ChristianCourier.com. Our brother Wayne Jackson, may he rest in peace, wrote an article in regards to the belief that is so commonly viewed under the umbrella of Christendom that no child of God has the free will capability to withdraw himself from his grace. Meaning there is nothing we can do once we have been saved by Jesus to fall away from grace. Is that true? Is that something we can read of in the Bible? Well, we want to check that out. We're going to read through the article, you and I together. Kind of, uh, you know, have a discussion on those things. Stefan Maia with you. AddedSouls.com is the website. This is the Early Bird Podcast Sessions. And, uh, hey, listen, consider subscribing, right? Giving us a thumbs up, a comment, sharing the link far and wide. All that kind of engagement really helps us reach uh, individuals like you and I who find great interest in the most important things in life, the purpose and uh, also, you can sign up to addedsouls.locals.com. It's free to sign up there, but you can support the work monthly. No amount is too low, no amount is too high. You can also send a one-time donation and things of that nature. Speaking, of course, to you all out there who find value in the Added Souls ministry. And uh, that is available to you. We are indeed currently raising support. We have a few thousand ahead to reach uh, to remain in the work and grow. So by all means, please consider this fruitful endeavor. And you can always reach out to me if you wish to have a video chat, a conversation on the phone, email exchange, whatever it is. We are transparent and uh, we've been so while in this ministry since 2011. Okay, so let me pull up here the article at hand from our brother over at christiancourier.com. But were they really saved? We hear that quite often. I've experienced it myself, sitting down with individuals throughout the many years, all kinds and colors, and we open the scriptures, and they have the idea that it is impossible for a Christian to fall from grace. And if one does indeed fall, it must have been because he or she was never saved. And, uh, well, we want to, you know, check the scriptures about that. That is, of course, this teaching I speak of where one says he or she can never fall from grace is a Calvinistic teaching. It comes from the Calvinistic system. And uh, we're going to look at that in more detail as the article from our brother Wayne Jackson uh, moves forward. So here we go. Let me just quote as we begin. Calvinists deny that a child of God can ever apostatize so as to be finally lost. When biblical examples are introduced to the contrary, it's claimed that either such souls were never saved to begin with, right, or else their loss was merely temporal, meaning, you know, it was just for a given little time on earth, but it had nothing to do with eternal consequences. So let's study the question more seriously, the article would, the article would demand. The issue of whether a child of God can ever lose his salvation is one of the truly most controversial topics within the community of Christendom. And it is, and I've recognized that myself as I 
evangelize online and in the physical world here out in the community. And we have ourselves some conversations about religious things and affairs of the Christian worldview. So it is frequently when the subject is broached, the tempers flare and emotional reactions abound. But the issue is serious, and it calls for calm, serious study. Friends, this is where we must find a mature, level-headed, self-controlled conversation and interaction study. If not, we will never arrive at the truth because we will allow our emotions to get the best of us as we are indeed emotionally invested in our worldviews, our religious positions and beliefs and churches, the upbringing, our forefathers, the traditions of their religious views that were passed on ancestrally to the next era. And so there are indeed a lot of emotional investments in all these religious views. But can we separate ourselves from them? Well, it's difficult. It's challenging, isn't it? But we have to. We have to be able to begin at a source of disagreement, yet in mutual respect and maturity towards one another, civil engagement and interaction. And the point, the objective, is to attain unity within the doctrine, within the teaching of the Christ, when it comes to things that are of an objective absolute and cannot be contaminated, cannot be compromised, cannot be moved. Now, can we come together in disagreement regarding things that are subjective, things that allow us for perhaps academic pursuit or difference in opinion, perhaps scruple, judgments that are permissible through the conscience to be different than another, well, of course we can have disagreements and still be united and in fellowship when it comes to that department of subjectivity. But when it comes to the strict and very uh, uh, bound doctrine of Christ, things such as the plan of salvation, the uniqueness of the church, the manner in which we are commanded to worship God, church discipline, Christian character, and things of that spiritual kind must be respected. And they are the very simple two plus two makes four, it don't make three, it don't make five. And so we need to respect each other and be kind to each other, even if we begin on the plateau of disagreement on opposite sides of the spectrum. We must be able to defend our position. Back to the article now in regards to, were they really saved? So the idea that the believer in Christ is, quote, eternally secure is so ingrained in the minds of the Calvinistic community that it's most difficult to dislodge uh, anything uh, that is so seemingly permanently frozen, this wall. But all who are humble and poor of spirit, of course, will allow themselves to ask a question. I have to ask the question every day. It is quite um, uh, revealing when we do so, and it allows us to grow. And the question, of course, is, am I wrong? Am I believing something so deeply and strong that may not be accurate? It may not be right. Imagine, if you will, going to your first day at work. You've been hired. You are indeed very joyful that you are now among the employed. And it's the first day at the station. And it might be at the factory. And you are going through the motion and the 
the process to be put into the station and there might be some training but you you don't need the training no you tell the boss there and the supervisor and the trainer you need none of those things you know the job already well you can see where this illustration will lead you getting fired real quick why well you can't walk into a location where they are seeking to pour fresh water into your cup if your cup's already full with vinegar we have to be willing to learn. And so when it comes to this conversation, it certainly is true that so many are ingrained with this thought and it cannot be dislodged because of, well, pride. And that is why God hates pride because pride will blind you from hypocrisy, from holding on to erroneous religious worldviews. So we must always be humble enough to ask the question, maybe I'm wrong. And what, really, what, what harm would it do for me to start to ask the question and open my thoughts again and seek the truth? If I currently hold the truth, then it will reinforce my faith in the truth. However, if I am deceived, if I am holding to a view that is not accurate, then I'll need to change but I'll gain eternal life through following the Christ and the accuracy of his doctrine. So you win. Again, you win in Christ. So the article continues. Admittedly, it is a doctrine full of comfort, speaking of the Calvinistic doctrine. The Calvinism, Calvinism, Calvinistic doctrine is indeed a doctrine full of, quote, or, yeah, quote, comfort, but it's a deceptive comfort. This idea that no matter what sort of evil the Christian does or how long he does it, he never will be consigned to hell is indeed a deceptive comfort. Satan could not have concocted a more alluring teaching. Yeah. Galvanized nails in the coffin way deep down there in, in the dirt, in the ground, with death in the tomb. It's the perfect... It's the perfectly constructed error and deceit, right? So we continue. There are two common rationalizations Calvinists employ in an attempt to nullify a great variety of passages that unequivocally demonstrate that a Christian can apostatize and ultimately be lost. So please, have patience and take the time to be kind of heart and humble and listen to the article moving forward, which points us to the scriptures, mind you. The first contention is this. If the scriptures indicate that someone is condemned, that must imply the person has never been saved. He was only a disingenuous pretender. The other rationalization is that the child of God merely, quote, falls away from a temporal divine favor, but not, quote, eternal salvation. Well, in this article, we wish to address these premises, and these premises, of course, from the Calvinistic worldview. And um, an interesting point to notify ourselves with. When you already come to the scriptures with a preconceived agenda and worldview, and you are not, through pride, allowing yourself to recognize, perhaps, error in your thinking, you're going to come to the scriptures forcefully adding to the text your own worldview. 
So if you come to the text as a Calvinist, guess how you are going to read the Bible? With the lens of Calvinism. And so if your lens of Calvinism are on, all the words you see in there, all the chapters and the verses and the books, in your mind are Calvinistic justification. And it leads one into a very dishonest position because one has to have the scriptures contradict clear teaching and meaning. And we do that with all religious views within the, the umbrella of Christendom when it comes to the ocean of denominationalism, sadly. And I understand it because myself and my family, in our past life, we certainly would practice the same kind of uh, error which was to come to the scriptures with our religious views. If it was Catholicism, then we'd read the Bible through the Catholic lens and think that the Bible was justif justifying Catholicism. It's the same with Calvinism or any other denominational establishment from the Baptist Church, Pentecostal Church, Wesleyan Methodist, Seventh-day Adventist, House of Nazareth, Gospel Hall, Pentecostalism, um, you name it. You name it. There are tens of thousands of denominations. I think they're up to like 50-some thousand now. And all of them have their own branch of interpretation because they bring their own selfish desires to the text and force that upon the text and make the scriptures say what they want it to say instead of being of an humble heart and allowing the author of the scriptures, which is the Holy Spirit, reveal the context and the interpretation he has intended for our minds. You see, we come to the text submissive to the information therein and not the other way around. And that's important information. And though it certainly can sound offensive for those of us who are perhaps fully emotionally invested in denominational worldviews, charismatic perhaps movements, uh, which, of course, is filled with the captivity and charm of your feelings. But if we have a sober and self-controlled mind, and we are humble of heart, as Christ would speak us to be in Matthew chapter, I believe, what is it now, 5, where he speaks of the attitudes we should be, we should practice, and the foremost is poor in spirit. Because if we are poor in spirit, will we be humble to receive the truth of the scriptures and therein become legal citizens of his kingdom? So we keep moving forward with the article. Now in uh, the example that will be utilized by our brother Wayne Jackson over at ChristianCourier.com, Judas is the first here section of the article in regards to the Calvinistic teaching that once you are saved, you can never be lost. It is hardly disputed that Judas, the betrayer of Christ, died lost when he committed suicide over the anguish of disgracing himself. And I might add that some brethren who have since contaminated themselves and compromised their faith would, would, would want to say in a very wishy-washy way, well, no one knows if Judas is truly eternally lost. He might be saved. Well, that's just a lie. The text is very clear that Judas went his own way. And the descriptive nature of the spirit through the pen in which he wrote would reveal in a rightly handled Bible that Judas certainly is eternally 
demised. So Christ himself described Judas as the, quote, son of perdition in John chapter 17, verse 12. This is a biblical expression signifying the destiny of a person, one, quote, doomed to eternal misery. In the same text, the Savior prophetically declared that Judas would, quote, perish. The inspired Peter specified that Judas went to his, quote, own place, Acts chapter 1, verse 25. Even the celebrated Baptist scholar, A.T. Robertson, who opposed the idea that a saved person could be lost, admitted there was, quote, no doubt in Peter's mind of the destiny of Judas. One, quote, worthy of Dante's inferno, end quote. This leaves us with the issue of whether Judas ever was saved, right? Well, the testimony of Peter is again definitive in indicating that once this apostle had been a saved person. Peter says that Judas, quote, was numbered among us and received his portion in this ministry, Acts 1.17. Again, Robertson notes that the expression, quote, received his portion is used especially of one who receives a, quote, divine appointment. Further, the apostle notes that the traitor, quote, fell away. One cannot fall away from where he has never been or into that in which always has been. Then there is this matter. Judas accompanied the other apostles on what is commonly called, quote, the limited commission, as detailed in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 and following. He was given the same spiritual powers as the others, including the ability to, quote, cast out demons. Now it was Christ himself. In a debate with the Pharisees, parentheses, those who accuse the Lord of casting out demons by the power of Satan, remember that? Well, they are who denied that one under the control of Satan would be casting out demons. So again, now it was Christ himself, in a debate with the Pharisees, who denied that one under the control of Satan would be casting out demons. In that case, he said the devil would be divided against himself, correct? Of course. Surely, therefore, no clear reasoning person would admit or would adopt such a position regarding Judas, thus placing the Son of God in an unfavorable light. Okay, we move forward to the next portion of evidence in regards to the scriptural revealing that one can certainly be saved, found in the favor of God and His grace with all the spiritual blessings, and choose of his or her free will to separate, withdraw, sever himself or herself from the location of the saved. We find Simon the sorcerer. The article continues. In Acts chapter 8, Luke records that Philip went to Samaria and proclaimed Christ. Multitudes, quote, gave heed to this message. And, quote, were baptized, both men and women, having believed the gospel message. The historian further observes that a man named Simon, a sorcerer, quote, also believed and was immersed. There is not the slightest indication that the latter was less genuine in his conviction that the other, uh, than, than the other Samaritans, okay? But the common ploy that he merely quote, professed belief, is negated by the fact that Peter encouraged him to, quote, pray for forgiveness. Prayer is the privilege of the child of God. Matthew 6, verse 9, 1 John 2, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 22, and chapter 5, verse 14. Pay attention now. Prayer 
is the privilege of the child of God, one who has been saved, not the sons of Satan. They don't have the privilege of prayer. Though a great many think they do, it falls short, it falls flat, it misses the mark. However, when Simon observed that the apostles could impart the gifts of the Spirit, in a moment of weakness, he sought to bribe them into bestowing upon him this ability. Such elicited a strong rebuke from Peter, who warned Simon that if he did not repent and pray for forgiveness, he would, quote, perish. The term is used of, quote, the loss of eternal life, eternal misery. Robertson notes that though there still was room for repentance, quote, Simon was on the road to destruction. In addition to the cases cited above, the one from the time of Christ and the other from the book of Acts, there are numerous references in the balance of the New Testament that clearly demonstrate that a child of God can forfeit his salvation. A few examples will have to suffice for this study, and I may just add this, dear friends, we can pretty much throw out the New Testament Bible. The 27 books of the New Testament can be thrown in the garbage. As a matter of fact, the whole Bible can be thrown into the garbage if there is absolutely no such thing as a child of God, one who has been saved, no longer having the need to remain saved. If it is impossible for one of free will to reject, neglect, and fall from grace, then the instructions of the scriptures are useless because all of it speaks about how to be saved and how to stay saved because you can lose your salvation. <laughs> and we all know that it is through the power of Christ, not of our own selves. There is nothing we can merit meritoriously do to earn our salvation. But dear friends, there is responsibility in the receiving of the gospel and our salvation. James himself would speak of our benevolence as Christians if we practice not through our faith an active faith which produces benevolence to our fellow man, then we are useless and in vain and lost. The writer, so specifically with rhetorical question in James chapter 2, 14, can a faith without works save anyone? Well, of course it can't. So one most certainly can become saved through the power of God but choose to neglect and reject God and his salvation all over again. That is the idea, of course, we find Peter speaking of the one who returns to his vomit, the dog returning to the vomit. Okay, we keep moving forward here in the article. Militia, uh, miscellaneous warnings. Okay, there we go. Miscellaneous warnings. You'll have to forgive me again. I'm a French guy speaking English words, so sometimes... You know, the pronunciation, it doesn't form itself well in my mind. Miscellaneous warnings. There are many warnings to Christians that they are to conduct themselves so as not to cause their kinsmen in Christ to fall and thus perish. To the Roman saints, Paul, Paul cautions, quote, Destroy not with your meat him for whom Christ died. Romans 14, 15. Note the equivalent, quote, overthrow not in verse 20. If the wheat brother is led to violate his conscience, he stands, quote, condemned in verse 23. The Greek term katakrino is a strong one, suggesting the idea of one who is worthy of punishment. Similarly, 
In the first Corinthian epistle, the apostle warns against causing to, quote, perish the weak brother for whom Christ died. 1 Corinthians 8, 11. To perish is the opposite of being saved. And you can see Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, 15. Elsewhere in the first letter, Paul commands the saints of the Corinthian congregation to discipline this fornicating brother so that his, quote, spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Additionally, he admonishes these brethren to, quote, hold fast the word so that they would not have, quote, believed in vain, chapter 15, verse 2. And you can compare that also with 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1. The Galatian letter is punctuated with warnings against apostasy and the danger of being lost. Some of these Christians were in the process of, quote, removing themselves from him who, quote, called them in the grace of Christ unto, quote, another gospel. And to teach or accept an alien gospel was to incur the Lord's anathema. First chapter one, uh, verses six through nine in Galatians. The word, quote, anathema suggests the idea of being under a divine curse, doomed. To contend that they never were saved is to fly directly in the face of Paul's testimony in chapter 3, verse 26 and 27. And what of the apostles' rebuke of Peter when the latter resisted fellowship with the Gentiles in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11? We might look at that article next time around from our friends over at christiancourier.com. We continue. Who could possibly dispute Galatians 5.4? Quoting, You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you are fallen away from grace. Those who sought to practice Judaism within the realm of salvation in Christ were severing themselves from Christ. And I find the language quite interesting from Paul, if I might say, because they were seeking to bind circumcision. And what is circumcision? The severing of the foreskin. That is not necessary. That is not commanded in the new law, the covenant of the Christ. We don't need to cut the foreskin anymore. Now, it's not a sin if you do, but you can't bind that as a religious law in Christ. And they were seeking to do that as Christians who had been saved. The article continues, the apostle was very fearful for the fate of those Galatian saints who were dig uh, uh, digressing back to the Mosaic system. He was afraid he had bestowed labor upon them in vain. Chapter 4, verse 11. Does that not contain an implication? Well, of course it does. If we're being sincere and honest, transparent and genuine to the text, if we are indeed poor in spirit, humble, pride, pride will blind you from the truth. The article continues, one can scarcely read the book of Hebrews without seeing that the document is a warning against the danger of departing from the faith with a dire consequence connected therewith. Early in the narrative, the book warns of the danger of, quote, drifting away from the gospel. The writer cautions that just as those under the first covenant received a just punishment for their rebellion, even so, quote, how shall we escape if we neglect our salvation through Christ? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The peril is described more precisely elsewhere in the book. 
how can one possibly meditate upon Hebrews 6, four, uh, Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 9 and not see the consequence of turning away from Christ, thus effectively crucifying him afresh? And what is the significance of the phrase, quote, whose end is to be burned? The attempt to argue the case that these people were never truly children of God is one of the more ludicrous attempts at biblical manipulation to mar religious literature. And what of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, quoting, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fierceness of fire that shall devour the adversaries. A man that set aside Moses' law died without compassion on the word of two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment do you think shall he be judged worthy, who has trodden underfoot the Son of God, and has counted the blood of the covenant with which he was sanctified an unholy thing, and has done insult unto the Spirit of grace?" For we know him that said, Vengeance belongs unto me. I will recompense. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How can anyone read this text and deny A, that genuine Christians are in view, or B, that they could be in danger of losing their relationship with the Lord and suffer an eternal consequence? We will depart this study with one final example of the dozens that could have been included. In his second letter to the, El to the elect, see, of course, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and 2 Peter 3, verse 1, Simon Peter clearly writes, quote, But there arose false prophets also among the people, as among you also there shall be false teachers, who shall secretly bring indestructive heresies, denying even the master that brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. The pertinent facts are evident. First, as noted already, quote, the elect, in other words, the saved, are in view. Those whom the master had bought. Second, these apostates will be influenced by, quote, destructive heresies. In other words, false teaching capable of destroying the soul. Third, those receiving this teaching will, quote, deny the master who, quote, bought them. Finally, the end of such defection will be their destruction. The destruction, quote, consists in the loss of eternal life, eternal misery, perdition. So in conclusion, we would encourage those who have been led to believe the erroneous notion that the Christian may never forfeit his redemption to restudy this issue with the greatest of care. One does not lose his freedom of choice when he becomes God's child. As he once chose to identify with the Lord, he may choose to renounce him. And if he does and remains in an impenitent state, his destiny will be horrible and eternal. This concludes, of course, the article from our friends over at ChristianCourier.com. The author, Wayne Jackson, may he rest in peace. 
And it is important for us to recognize also, if I am to open up the book of Romans, which often is also utilized out of context to justify Calvinism with the once saved, always saved slogan. But let me, let me show you something here that I had to study myself in regards to Romans chapter 8. Where are you, Romans? Come over here. Acts in Romans, right? Romans chapter 8. The first verse of chapter 8 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it is conditional within the verse itself if you pay attention to the words it is speaking. Therefore it is now there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have to remain in, and you have responsibility and priority to do what is proper to remain in. If you don't, you will no longer be found in, but will be found out. Again, you cannot go out of something you were never found in. And that is important. And there are also verses that say that the devil can't snatch us away from the love and power of Christ. And that is true if we don't let him. <laughs> if we continue to love Christ and uh, uh, stay away from the devil, then it is true. The power of Christ will keep us safe if we remain within the instruction of the Christ. And that in Romans chapter 8, of course, continues to produce. If you are to remain in Christ where there is security of salvation, then you must abide by the new covenant system, the law of the spirit of life, the 27 books of the New Testament law of Christ. We learn from the 39 books of the old. It gives us the nature of God, and it certainly reveals a great many illustrations and, and, and uh, practical applications in format, and so it is important altogether. But we live in the New Testament system, the 27 books of the New Covenant, to which Christ purchased with his own blood, and all who follow the law of liberty, the law of eternal life, remain in Christ. But those who don't are removed. And you can read about that in Romans chapter 8, of course. Just wanted to add that. And one must understand something also that needs to be shared. When you are faithful in Christ, it is true that you might stumble. It is true that you might have a sinful thought. You may say a sinful word. You may do something sinful. You may fall in sin. Perhaps you struggle with addiction. Perhaps you struggle with anger. Perhaps you struggle with a great many false beliefs that you once had in your past life prior to your conversion in Christ. You may struggle with a great many things for many years while you slowly grow. Friends, you can find peace in knowing you are with Christ. John's letters in 1st, 2nd, 3rd, uh, you'll find in 1st John a lot of instruction wonderful, joyful instruction to give us comfort that once we are in Christ and faithful, though we may struggle with sin, and though we are held accountable and responsible to uh, uh, learn and grow away from sin, we are faithful, and He is faithful, and He will secure us in salvation. When one chooses to drift away, to fall away from grace, friends, it takes a perpetual a uh, preconceived agenda to remain in sin and to live in sin. An example that is very easy to identify, if I as a Christian who has been saved by Jesus 
choose to uh, cheat on my wife and practice fornication, pornea, with another, therein locking into an adulterous union. Friends, that's a violation of the law of Christ. And if I remain there in rebellion, living an adulterous life, I cannot go to heaven. It would be a hypocrisy and a contradiction on God's law. I must be condemned, for I am living lawlessly. And that's important because we don't want to live a life of Russian roulette faith. Oh, one hour I'm saved. Oh, one hour I'm lost. Oh, no, one hour I'm saved. Oh, no, one hour I'm lost. Which hour will I die? Who knows? I hope it's on the good hour and not on a bad hour. You see how that would not give us any comfort or peace or foundation in our faith. You can know you are saved. How? You do your best to follow the instructions of Christ. Okay, that will conclude our session this Thursday themed topic topical session day. Please check out the show notes if you find days there that might interest you. I try my best to be consistent from Monday to Friday, but sometimes local work and a great many responsibilities take precedence and I can't go live. But you can certainly find me on my Facebook profile, Stefan Ashmaye. I am there. You can also find my Facebook Added Souls page and uh, you can find us pretty much everywhere, right? We are on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, uh, you can check out on YouTube. I started uploading my audio podcast there as well. You can also please check out eastcoastchurchofchrist.com. I labor alongside my brethren at the East Coast Church of Christ. And you can check out the website and you can check us out on Facebook where I upload my weekly sermons and the lessons and the things I, I share. And we are growing and we are a beautiful, wonderful family and you can partake in that work if you so are willing and able, reach out to us, get involved, and know what's going on. If you're in this community on the East Coast over here in New Brunswick, Canada, more poignantly in the Moncton, Dieppe, and Riverview area and around, please reach out to us if you'd like to study. We have visitors, we have friends, we have Bible studies, and you can certainly participate in that in a very personal way. We can set up a physical sit-down, we can set up a a, a, a uh, video chat. If you'd like to study, if your heart is seeking, and there is the key, if you are seeking the answers, we can get together and certainly study. And also, please consider subscribing to the channel, giving us a thumbs up, sharing a comment, and sharing the link far and wide. That helps a whole bunch. And if you are a child of God, and you are seeking a good work to participate in, sign up to addedsouls.locals.com, and you can support us there. Good stuff. I appreciate all of you. You are loved. You are prayed for. Stay focused. Stay positive. Lord willing, we shall certainly see each other again next time around. Peace out.